0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and
1: more.
2: G'day, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal land in Sydney. Tonight, wages are finally growing faster than the cost of living, but is that going to make inflation hang around even longer? Also, the author of a major university's review tells PM the nation needs to train up many more workers or get used to permanently high levels of migration. And after the heartache of a double murder in Sydney, should New South Wales police officers be marching in this Saturday's Mardi Gras parade?
3: I want to say you're welcome as individuals, but you're not really welcome under your your badge. You want
4: authorities to have a place in the community, not be divided from the celebration that's going on.
2: Thanks for your company. There are warnings this evening. The painful battle to bring inflation under control could take longer than expected, with business groups pointing the finger at rising wages. Wages grew by 4.2% in the year to December 31, the highest growth in 15 years. And something the government is very pleased about, a promise to get wages moving again, has been delivered. But Treasury analysis, first reported in the Australian Financial Review, suggests growing pay packets are now driving the bulk of inflation, with the Australian Industry Group even suggesting there's now a real risk of a wage price spiral. As David Taylor reports, unions say a wage price spiral in the current economic climate simply isn't possible.
3: After being stubbornly low for the better part of a decade, workers' pay packets are growing faster than inflation.
5: So wages growth was slow to pick up, but it's now picking up.
3: ANZ senior economist Catherine Birch says Australia's rigid system of wage determination means it's taken years for workers to bargain for higher pay in the midst of elevated inflation.
5: So We've got more than half of workers who are on award wages, so they're only reset once a year, and enterprise bargaining agreements, which can be locked in for a few years.
3: The December quarter wage price index, which is a Bureau of Statistics measure of pay increases, showed the growth in workers' pay packets rising at the fastest pace in 15 years. Well, Now, Treasury analysis, released under Freedom of Information, shows decade-high wages growth is the biggest driver of consumer price inflation, with labour costs making up almost two-thirds of the CPI. And wages growth, says Catherine Birch, will continue to pick up.
5: There are still more workers rolling onto new enterprise agreements that will have the higher wage increases that reflect the tighter labour market.
3: Employer representative, the Australian Industry Group, warns the recent gains that have been made in reducing inflation are at risk of being undone. Ines Willocks is the CEO.
6: Well, I've been attacked now for some time for saying that if we don't keep wages under control, wages growth under control, then we will lead to a wage wage spiral, uh, which then impacts on interest rates uh, and impacts on inflation. Uh, And we're at the point where we don't, nobody wants to see that happen, but we run a real risk now of it happening. And that's why we have to keep inflation under control and we have to keep wages under control to keep inflation under control. The two are absolutely linked uh, like hand in glove and, you know, we can't walk away from that.
3: ACTU Secretary Sally McManus argues there is no prospect of a wage price spiral.
6: So that uh, that Mr
0: Willocks well knows it's completely untrue. It's not possible for there to be a wage price spiral in 2024 in Australia because we don't have the industrial system that we had back in the 80s. But just remember, Australian workers are still um, back where we were four years ago in terms of the real value of our, of our uh, wages. So I think that this is an entirely um, self-interested argument being run by um, the spokespeople for big business.
3: While economists reject the idea of an imminent wage price spiral, ANZ Bank senior economist Catherine Birch says there is a risk the higher growth in workers' pay packets will keep the Reserve Bank on the interest rate sidelines for longer than some borrowers would prefer.
5: We don't see any signs of a wage price spiral emerging. Um, So we are expecting that wage growth on the whole will be slowing, particularly from the second half of of 2024.
3: Is there any suggestion that because wages growth is higher now, that it will mean it's a bit longer before the Reserve Bank can be confident that it can lower interest rates?
5: Yeah, I think because wages growth has been accelerating more recently after a slow start, and that it's likely to remain, um, we think it will remain just above sort of the four percent on that wage price index, Um, through the first half of 2024. That does mean that all else equal inflation will be a bit slower to come down.
3: As for the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers... Well, he couldn't hide his delight for higher wages growth at question time in Parliament today.
7: This side of the House, the Labor government, we are the party of higher wages and tax cuts for Middle yeah. Australia because we
3: believe Order. people
7: should earn more and keep more of what they earn. If those opposite had their way, inflation would be higher, the wages would be lower, business. tax cuts would be smaller and more people would be working longer for less. Yeah.
2: That's the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, during Question Time today, David Taylor, with that report. Australia's top universities have poured cold water on a proposal for a higher education future fund where wealthier institutions would contribute to a pool of money to help fund universities in greater need of funding. Sydney University Vice-Chancellor Mark Scott and Monash's Vice-Chancellor Sharon Pickering are among those describing it as a tax that will further damage a sector already under strain.
7: I think it's just a strange argument that says if this report demonstrates that the system is chronically underfunded, then the only revenue measure identified should be a tax on the system that's chronically underfunded.
8: The idea that you take from the world-class part of your system, uh, the part that puts us on the world stage, it doesn't make much sense to take from those universities to go
2: elsewhere. Sharon Pickering there and Mark Scott before her. Well, Education Minister Jason Clare is now considering all recommendations put forward by the University's Accord Review. And what this report says is that by the middle of this century, we'll need a workforce where 80% of that workforce haven't just finished high school, but they've got a TAFE qualification or a university degree as well. And that's not going to be easy. 80%. Well, the author of the review is Mary O'Kane, and she joined me earlier. Mary O'Kane, thanks for being with us. Let's start with the issue that's generated the most friction, the Higher Education Future Fund. How important was this recommendation for you compared to the dozens of other recommendations you made?
8: Well, I suppose I could say that it is recommendation 47 of 47 recommendations. <laughs> it is important to think about the higher education system as a system and how everybody contributes to that system being healthy. And so the idea of a, of co-contribution has been in the system a long time, particularly for funding infrastructure and, you know, you can think of it for things important, really important things like student housing. But it's one recommendation at the end of a very long set of very interconnected recommendations. So it's important, but I think the focus should go much more to the skills, the equity, the new knowledge.
2: Have you been surprised at the negative reaction from some no, of No, not at all. Eight?
8: Not at all. No, and it's good to have the debate because somebody might think of a, re- a better version of it to suggest to government when it comes to look at implementation. So I, I I strongly welcome the debate and universities are very good at
2: debates. Yeah, indeed. Well, let's look at the bigger picture. The report recommends a tertiary attainment target of at least eighty percent by 2050. That's uh, you know students mm. with uni or TAFE qualifications in order to meet the demands of the future workforce. Now, if we fail to do that what will happen? Where will that future workforce have to come from?
8: From somewhere, obviously, there is migration and things like that, but there's also upskilling and reskilling of the existing workforce and we put a lot of emphasis on that mm. in the review As and we do acknowledge the importance of migration. But the issue is can we afford not to skill up to those levels if we're going to have the economy we'll need for that period and the society we need, the care society we need. Mm. It's really important, you know, and that's why we put so much emphasis on aspiration for equity groups, for people who wouldn't have ever thought of going to university or to TAFE.
2: So so you mentioned migration there. I mean, is it a, is it a choice? Because obviously migrations are no, hugely... It's a, no,
8: it's an, in, in,
2: it's an and. It's an okay. and. It's an and. So, so you
8: know, we need the lot.
2: But what you're saying is if we don't train up our domestic workforce to where it needs to be, we're going to have to bring in more migrants to do that work, which is what we're doing at or, the moment, or, right?
8: Or let the economy slip. You know, there's the, there's pretty stark choices. And, you know, we want to give every Australian a chance to be able to go to tertiary education, meaning the VET or the higher ed sector. I mean, it's not just about skills, or those skills is vitally important it's also about being a, a big and successful democracy and making sure this is the land of the free go.
2: Mm. The report says we need to more than double the number of commonwealth supported students in universities does it follow that the cost to the taxpayer would more than double as well
8: and the cost to the to the individuals through the hex contribution mm. would go up too yes it does follow that it might not double exactly or it might even be more mm. but It will cost more. But again, can we afford not to do it is the big issue. And the issue that I was a bit sceptical before we started this review as to that skills need, but the more I studied it, the more I realised how important it is to giving Australia a great future.
2: What are some of the other ways that you've looked at where universities can get funding, if not from international students, uh, grants or or the the federal government?
8: We raised the issue, and echoing the Productivity Commission in in its report early in 23, we raised the issue too of universities um, being wise consultants and being able to solve problems because universities, our Australian universities are stunning research organisations. They also are very, very innovative in what they do, and yet we don't pick it up in industry and government. But if government and industry turn to them to solve big problems, to solve policy problems, to solve technological problems, to solve things like environmental problems, there's a real powerhouse sitting there.
2: So so So, really using universities and and experts, uh, academics there, as as almost consultants, paid consultants for government and, and business.
8: Or special projects and, and yeah, paid for, fully, you know, at full cost to to do the work.
2: Mary O'Kane, great to talk to you. We'll see where the government lands on it.
8: Indeed. Thanks for the opportunity.
2: That's the chair of the university's Accord Review, Mary O'Kane. In New South Wales, police are still searching for the bodies of television presenter Jesse Baird and his partner Luke Davies. Police are alleging the young men were murdered last week by Mr. Baird's former partner, a police officer, Beau Lamar Condon. The alleged crime has prompted one media outlet to call on New South Wales police not to march in this Saturday's Sydney Mardi Gras parade. But the state's police commissioner has firmly rejected that suggestion. Samantha Donovan has more. Happy New South Wales Police have been marching
0: in the Sydney Mardi Gras Parade since 1998. The presence of gay and lesbian officers is a huge change from the first parade in 1978 when police arrested and beat many of the marchers. Now, after the apparent murders of Sydney men Jesse Baird and Luke Davies, allegedly at the hands of police officer Bo Lamar Condon, the Sydney Morning Herald is calling for police not to march in this Saturday night's parade. This is an extract from the paper's
2: editorial today. The Herald does not believe New South Wales police should permanently cease marching in Sydney's Mardi Gras festival. There are many good people in the force, including LGBTQ officers. However, we do think police should not march this Saturday, given the pain and anger felt by so many following the suspected deaths of Baird and Davies. The police officers who planned to march this year should not be punished for the alleged sins of a colleague, but their presence would cause an additional layer of unnecessary heartache.
0: Karen Webb is the New South Wales Police Commissioner. She firmly believes officers should be marching at the Sydney Mardi Gras this Saturday night. We have been
9: building a bridge with the gay, lesbian community since the 78ers were mishandled by police back in the day. We have been participating in Mardi Gras for the last 20 years and haven't missed a year and I would hate to see that this is the year that we are excluded because of the actions of one person that is not gay hate related.
0: She went on to describe the alleged double murder this way. This is a crime of passion we will allege, it is domestic related we allege. And that would be a
9: real travesty for this organisation to be excluded, including my many of my officers who seek approval to participate, who are also members of that community. And to um, shut the door on them would be... Um,
0: it would set us backwards. On the Mardi Gras parade route in Oxford Street, Sydney, there are mixed opinions on whether police should march this Saturday night after the alleged murders of Jesse Baird and Luke Davies.
4: If they need to represent themselves, then yeah, like, I know there's a long history from 1978 and, and, and things were illegal back in the day, and there's been some nasty things happen to people, but it's not 1978 anymore, it's the 21st century, like, if they need to represent themselves in their community, then they should be able to do that.
3: I think it's a controversial point because I really want to reach everyone and invite everyone to the party. The issue that I have is the same issues with corporate. It's just like police have been checking so much space, and police has not really been like a, the best ally in the
4: in, in the matter. We've come a long way, but. I think the police in Australia are really good. They do their jobs properly. They do everything for the community and they genuinely do care, opposed to other countries, which is why I think that the police should march. Nicholas Stewart
0: is a partner at LGBT law firm Dawson Turco in Sydney and he helped lead the campaigns for two parliamentary inquiries and one judicial commission of inquiry into crimes against LGBT people in New South Wales. He doesn't agree with the Sydney Morning Herald's call for police to refrain from marching in this Saturday's Mardi Gras parade.
4: It's probably an overreaction. The individual who's been charged with the murders of Jesse and his partner is now in custody and the police have done a really good job. It's one individual, it's not the New South Wales Police Force. The second thing I'd say is that even though the New South Wales Police Force conducted itself defensively in the proceedings before Justice Sacker in the New South Wales Commission of Inquiry into Historical Murders of LGBT People. Um, The commissioner has announced an apology. She's published an apology. She came to the memorial that was hosted at Marks Park on the weekend at Bondi. Um, And I think we can only have meaningful change and build this relationship back to where it should be with the police force if they participate in our own celebrations. And then the other thing I would say is, of course, there are members of the New South Wales Police Force who are also members of the LGBT community and they are proud to wear their uniform and participate in what is a celebration of our liberation.
2: That's Nicholas Stewart from LGBT law firm Dowson Turco, that report from Samantha Donovan and Rachel Hayter. You're listening to PM with me, David Lipson. Don't forget, you can hear all of our programs either live or later on via the ABC Listen app. For the past three decades, China has been implementing a nationwide patriotic education campaign in its schools, hoping young people will embrace values endorsed by the Chinese Communist Party. Now Beijing is enshrining that tactic into law. And since January, a new patriotic education law has started being enforced for Chinese citizens living overseas, including here in Australia. Wing Kuang reports.
1: Chinese international student, Fa Chang, lives in Melbourne, and we are only using her first name. She remembers her education growing up in China. There was the usual studies of maths and English, but there was also a hefty serve of what's called patriotic education such as watching some documentaries that is mainly talks about Chinese history. And another is just browsing Chinese news online. It's a website where we can browse the sort of socialism with Chinese characteristics. It strictly followed the Chinese Communist Party line and had a strong element of nationalism within it. But Fa Cheng didn't see it as a bad thing. I actually feel okay with it because I'm a Chinese and it's kind of necessary for me to know what our society is. And was a mean ideology and values is. And now, China has introduced a new law to enforce this curriculum. It came into effect on the 1st of January. The law now says China must promote patriotism among Chinese people living overseas. Bingling is a Chinese law professor at the University of Sydney.
6: These are political statements. They are not meant to be used by the courts or by the lawyers in deciding legal uh, disputes. Their main purpose is to validate and restate uh, certain policies or policy objectives that the Communist Party and the government uh, want to promote.
1: Professor Ling says the law is designed to shore up support inside China, but there are also implications for people in Australia.
6: If you have very deep engagement with China, you want to educate yourself about Chinese politics and Chinese legal institutions in general, just to make sure that you will always act in a way that is safe for you and your family. We've already have uh, some unfortunate incidents in which Australian citizens or residents in legal jeopardy in China. Dr
1: Wei Zhang from the University of Western Australia has been researching the topic. She says the new law simply makes a long-running practice more official and applicable. It's also a sign that President Xi Jinping is tightening his grip on power. Dr Zhang says Australian universities have an opportunity to help young Chinese people learn how to navigate complicated issues. Maybe instead of just tagging them with some region names, we might as educators think about how can we create or provide meaningful dialogue and opportunities for those students to find their own voice and start critically, you know, analyzing things, including patriotic education themselves. The ABC has asked the Chinese embassy if Beijing intends to enforce the law in Australia. In a statement, Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade says Australia determines what laws apply here.
2: Wing Kwong reporting there. Former New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian begun a court challenge seeking to overturn findings by the Independent Commission Against Corruption. After a lengthy investigation, the ICAC last year found Ms Berejiklian had engaged in corrupt conduct. But her legal team argues the commission was acting outside its powers. New South Wales state political reporter Nick Doll's been in court today. Nick, these findings are really what drove a very popular premier out of office. Just take us back. What's the former premier alleged to have done?
10: Hi, David. Uh, yeah, well, it all centres on a, a secret relationship that Ms Berejiklian had with the former Wagga Wagga MP, Daryl Maguire. Now, it wasn't common knowledge. It was something that surprised many of her colleagues. And ultimately, the ICAC found that because Ms Berejiklian didn't declare that relationship and because it was occurring while Mr Maguire was also actively lobbying for government funding – Uh, it found that that constituted a serious corrupt conduct finding. Now, Gladys Berejiklian's always denied wrongdoing. She wasn't in the Court of Appeal today, but she was represented by a high-profile silk, Brett Walker SC, who specialises in these kinds of matters. He told the court that the term friends with benefits gets bandied around these days, but in the case of his client, he said there was no benefit. He said she didn't get any financial interest. He said there was no evidence that the relationship improperly influenced her decisions. And so essentially he was saying there was no conflict to declare. He said it's not reasonable to suggest that politicians can't have personal attachments, as he put it. And he said there was no register either where politicians had to declare either their spouses or even how many people they go to bed with, in his words. Mm. So he said what really matters is that, you know, whether there was some sort of improper benefit, and in this case, he argues there wasn't.
2: And her legal team's also seemingly accusing the ICAC of overreach.
10: Yeah, that's right, because the ICAC hearings were heavily focused on the sorts of projects that Daryl Maguire was lobbying for and, you know, trying to make an assessment as to whether that relationship may have had any effect. Things in his electorate like a conservatorium of music or support for the Clay Shooting Club. Now, Brett Walker SC told the court that it's routine for elected politicians who are accountable to the parliament to make decisions about where funding is allocated. And he said it wasn't really appropriate for the ICAC to be turning its attention to you know, what rep- represented good value for money. Uh, he even suggested it might be bordering on undemocratic for the commission to do that.
2: And if they don't win on those points, they seem to be arguing that the whole ICAC report was actually invalid. How do they come to that po- that conclusion?
10: Yeah, because an assistant commissioner by the name of Ruth McColl, uh, she was presiding over these hearings and she did the vast majority of work writing the report. Now, when... This this dragged on for so long that her commission essentially had to be extended and she became essentially a contractor, a consultant for the ICAC. Now, it's Ms Berejiklian's legal team's argument that that contractor status essentially uh, invalidates her findings. Um, The ICAC, on the other hand, it says it was completely valid for her to preside over the hearings uh, and to write the report because uh, it argues that ultimately that report was adopted by the commission formally. And so that's what it will be arguing uh, as this hearing continues. Another day of hearings we're expecting, David. Uh, whether we'll have an answer soon, uh, it's its very unlikely, but certainly a lot riding on it for both uh, the former Premier's reputation and ICAC's.
2: Nick Dole reporting there. Bigger than the Beatles, it's an old saying and one that's been used by more than a few people lately to describe pop sensation Taylor Swift's current tour of Australia, as well as drawing half a million fans to her performances. The wider social impact has been enormous. So, at risk of upsetting an entire generation of listeners, Annie Guest is asking, could the Tay-Tay tour be bigger than the Beatles' famous trip to Australia in 1964?
9: The screaming and crying of concertgoers in 1964 captures the essence of Beatlemania in Australia, something music critic Glenn A Baker documented in his book, Beatles Down Under.
7: When the Beatles came, we hadn't really seen anything quite like it. It was sort of like, like a, royal, a royal visit multiplied.
9: One demonstration of the near-mass hysteria surrounding the Beatles was the number of people that turned up at Adelaide Airport, an estimated 30% of the city's population.
7: Let me tell you, in Adelaide, 350,000 people turned out to see them. It was half the population of cities. It was just quite unbelievable. And there was a sense when they left... They flew out, there were people saying they looked up in the sky and they thought, life will never be the same again.
9: The one-off Beatles tour came when Australia had a population of only 11 million. And as Glenn A Baker notes, it was also around the beginning of the rock and roll era.
7: It changed the nature of the music that we listened to. It changed our attitude to what entertainment was. It was just quite unbelievable. They changed the very nature Of our society, there was no question about it.
9: The phenomenal nature of that Beatles tour to Australia is again front of mind for music historians as they contemplate the Swift sensation. Taylor Swift's concerts, with crowds of around 80,000 plus, are longer and bigger than the Beatles, whose Sydney audience, for example, was 3,000. So is the Tay-Tay sensation bigger than the Beatles?
7: It will never be bigger. There will never be an entertainment force that will be bigger than the Beatles in Australia because it changed the very nature of the way we looked at entertainment. They were so much a part of our coming of age. Felt it first with Elvis, but we certainly felt felt it with the Beatles. They got to change our way of life.
9: But the rock historian acknowledges Tay-Tay may be this generation's version of the Beatles.
7: Nobody has touched the teenage nerve like Taylor Swift since the Beatles. And that's what I'm prepared to say.
9: Maybe the Beatles mark Australia's biggest reaction to a touring musical act, but perhaps that's not the most interesting comparison. There's other ingredients to the huge social phenomenon of Taylor Swift.
0: The question is not so much about scale, but, you know, the impact on the people involved and and what it means to them. Author Tabitha Carvin
9: writes about fandoms and the women who love them.
0: I think that Taylor Swift has changed what it means to be a girl who is a fan of something, you know, forever. She has made it totally acceptable to be as feminine in your fandom as you want to be.
9: Tabitha Carvin is one of many mums who went along with their daughter, something distinctive about Taylor Swift performances.
0: We sat behind uh, three young women who was there with their mother and they had made a T-shirt for their mother that said, it's me, hi, I'm the mum, it's me. Mothers are, are a huge part of the Taylor Swift story, you know, in her personal story, but also in the way that, you know, mothers are kind of shaping and, you know, nourishing this kind of fandom in their daughters.
9: She says Taylor Swift helps fans feel not only connected to her, but also with each other.
2: Sure does. Any guest reporting there, that's the show for today. Thanks for joining us on PM. I'm David Lipson. See you tomorrow.
9: Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. We've probably all experienced a less than desirable ride on public transport, but for people with a disability, every day can be an absolute horror show. Today we bring you an ABC investigation into how millions of Australians are being let down by our public transport networks. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app.